We are continuing on with our series about bringing the gospel home. Pastor Dave did a phenomenal teaching last year, uh, last week called uh, A Pebble in Your Shoe. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend going to see it because it's something that was being stuck in my brain all week. You can go to YouTube, Facebook, or our website, Northwest Orlando, and you can see A Pebble in Your Shoe. But today, I want to talk about something called, But I Don't Wanna, right? Is anyone else with me on that one? Yeah, but I don't want to. I want to do this. Bring the gospel home. Can't you just do it for me? Can I just turn the TV on and your kids do it? They watch and I don't have to do anything, right? But I don't want to. I think there are many of us that, that are either are in that place or have been in that place. But today, talking about I don't want to is really going to be tackling an attitude within us. And, and, you know, if you're a brand new Christian and you're so excited that you just found Christ and you've got this new life in Jesus, thank you. Congratulations. This is wonderful. I'm maybe not speaking to you as much. Maybe I'm giving you a heads up of what might come your way, but I'm really speaking to those of us who have been in the faith for quite a while, and that's most of us probably in this room right now. Because when you're first saved, there is an eagerness. There's a joy that you found. You're like, I have to tell everybody. I'm going to tell the grocery bag uh, bagger, whatever the guy's called. I'm going to tell the Uber driver and the Lyft driver. I'm going to tell everybody how amazing this is. But as you go along, it's like, I, don't, I haven't really told anyone recently. And maybe as you go along, actually what you do is you run out of non-Christian friends, right? All your friends start becoming Christian. You're really only running in circles of Christianity. So it's harder and harder to reach out to people that you don't know. And either the people who are not Christians are either people who, uh, that you don't know or it's the people who are your family and you're not even sure you want them to be in heaven when you go there too, right? Just me? Okay, never mind. But what's worse is when I believe that we choose whom we share the gospel with. That's what's actually worse, is when we decide that you I'll share it with, but you, mm, I'm not too sure. That's when we've gotten to a really bad place in our discipleship, in our Christian faith. And today, I want to look at someone specifically who refused to share the good news with someone he knew. <clears throat> this is a very familiar story to you. But he refused to share with someone he knew. Specifically, it was actually someone in his family. So we're going to be reading from the book of uh, Luke. And the book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke, if you're, if you're new to the faith, there were four specific people in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are the four uh, um, uh, records that we have of the things that Jesus said and did. And they're really kind of four different perspectives on the exact same person doing the exact same thing. And so, and so we're going to be reading from this guy called Luke, who is actually a doctor, a very intellectual guy. And I'm now going to kneel down, not because I'm spiritual and holy, but because my lace is actually untied. Hold on a second. So I'll just keep talking. So Dr. Luke actually wasn't one of uh, Jesus' disciples. He wasn't one of Jesus' gang, right, when Jesus was around on the earth. He was actually the lawyer for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had, was, uh, was one of the main writers of the New Testament, and he had been dragged off to Rome because they thought that he was trying to uh, undermine what Rome was trying to do, so they, they, they took him before the courts in, in, Paul, in, uh, in Rome. But what he did is he actually found this Christian who was a doctor, a very intellectual guy, and he was a lawyer as well, and 
so he actually put together this writing called the Gospel of Luke, which was actually a law brief. It was a law defense for Paul. And so he, uh, he, he went around to as many people as possible to ask them, what is it that Jesus said and what did he do? And so it's one of the best records that we have of the things that Jesus said and did. And so we're going to jump into chapter 14. I'm going to try and lay a little bit of a groundwork here before we get into chapter 15. But chapter 14 is where Jesus is hanging out with some Pharisees. And it says this, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. What's a Pharisee? A Pharisee was someone who was much like Jesus in the sense that he wanted to walk in the ways of God. A Pharisee was someone who wanted to keep the ways of God, the, keep the laws of God, be pure, be holy, be good, do the right things in the eyes of God. That's what a Pharisee was. And so there was a prominent Pharisee, which means he was really well known. Obviously, he was uh, really well respected. And he was invited over, Jesus was invited over to this prominent Pharisee's house. There wasn't a battle going on. There wasn't a fight between this group of people and Jesus. Not yet. So he was considered as someone who could be one of our gang, is what the Pharisees thought. And it says he was being carefully watched. He was being measured. Why? Because he was doing amazing things and saying amazing things. He was saying things about Scripture that people went, I've never thought of that before. That is amazing. I never understood Scripture that way. And then, of course, he was balancing it with seeing miracles happen. He was, he was praying for people and commanding sicknesses to leave them. And they were being healed and delivered. And, and sight, blind people were seeing things. And these Pharisees groups were coming along going, this guy really knows his game. We should get him on our team. He seems like he should be on our team here. And so this is where we're, we're starting. We're, we're laying this groundwork. But now we're going to go from Luke chapter 14 to Luke chapter 15 and see that something changes. And here's where we're going to start. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. This is the opposite group of people. The opposite group of people. You've got the holy people, the Pharisees, and then you've got the government people right there, the sinners, right? Right? No? Okay, no. Just kidding. Okay. So the tax collectors... And the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. They were not happy with us. Why? Well, sinners were not someone that the Pharisees wanted to talk about, to, to, sorry, hang around. And they didn't want to be around the tax collectors. Why? Because the tax collectors were taking money for an evil Roman empire that was crushing the, the, Israel, the nation of Israel. And so they were like, these guys are working for the enemy. This is not right. Okay, so this is where we are. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered. Why? Because they said, this man, who's Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now they're not happy with him. Now they're not happy with the way that he is doing things. So what we're going to do is, we're actually going to look at three different stories here that, are, that Jesus is about to actually tell, right? Now, how here we got Jesus who's hanging out with sinners and he's upsetting the Pharisees. The Pharisees were making a game to try and get Jesus into their gang. Now, there was many other groups that were in the city at that, at that time and, and were around at that time. There was even the Sadducees as well, right? Now, my father used to tell me about the Sadducees and he would say, let me tell you how you remember who's who, right? The Sadducees were the ones that didn't believe in miracles and they didn't believe there was an afterlife and that's why they were sad. You see? Thanks, Dad. 
But now I remember, and I've just told you all now, and you're not going to forget it, right? So the Sadducees were the group that Jesus didn't want to be a part of, and the Sadducees didn't make a game for Jesus. There was another group called the Essenes, and the Essenes were like monks, and what they did is they, they kept themselves apart from the population, right? We're, we're not going to hang out with the, the peasants, the, 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 the mass unwashed people, right? We're not going to be with them. We're just going to get into our cloisters, and we're going to write Scripture down, and we're going to do it for posterity and for the next generation. We're going to keep things, and a, a, a document of all the Scriptures for generations to come, which is kind of cool because that's where we believe the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. I won't go down that rabbit trail but these were basically like monks but Jesus wasn't a monk Jesus wanted to be out in public he wanted to be with the the lost the least and the last he wanted to be around those that needed to, to hear about God so they didn't make a game for him then there was one other group who didn't make a game for him either they tried a little bit but it was the zealots which is where we get which is they, they get their, their their name from the word zeal which means they were really zealous they were what we call the social justice warriors. They were the ones that, that wanted to take down the Roman Empire. They wanted to take the power from the elite and give it to the little man. They wanted to take power back and they were going to do it through force. We're seeing that a lot in culture right now too. But they couldn't get Jesus to join their gang because Jesus wasn't about doing things through force. He was about doing things through the kingdom of God, through the power of God, through the spirit of God. And so the Pharisees were the only ones left. And when they realized that Jesus wasn't going to be a part of their gang, they started to mutter because he wasn't living the way that, he, that they wanted him to live. And so here's where we're now going to be at, where Jesus now says, well, actually says in, in verse 3, it says, then Jesus told them this parable. Who was he telling? He was telling the sinners. He was telling the tax collectors. But specifically, he was trying to speak to the Pharisees. Then Jesus told them this story. And he said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. This is significant because finding this lost sheep is something that was so, so, so important. Because he's talking about this principle of rejoicing over something that has been found that once was lost. You follow me so far? This is the first parable he says, and he goes on, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. If most of you are righteous people in this room, meaning that you've given your life to Christ, your name's in the, 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 the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, heaven is not rejoicing over you today. Did you know that? Bad news, isn't it? It's like, oh, thanks for the encouraging word there, pastor. It's not rejoicing over us. Jesus said that heaven rejoices over when one sinner gets saved. All right. I remember, I remember being in the place where I lost my keys at the beach. And uh, you ever done that before? You lost your keys and you're just like, where are the keys? We're sunburned. I'm covered in sand. I don't want to be here. What are we going to do? And you're running around, look at these keys, look at these keys. And then when you find them on the beach, you're like, thank you, Jesus. Ice cream for everybody right? 
because you're, you're rejoicing. You're so happy that you've found something that you lost when you lose something and it's valuable to you and you find it, you just wanna high five everybody. You're just like, you're just like, you're like posting something on the internet about how good God is that very day, right? Because you found your keys. That's the first parable. Here's the second parable that Jesus tells and it says, or suppose, this is him continuing on, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, come over for uh, Cosmos and cake and have, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Okay, before it was just heaven, thinking maybe God was just high-fiving himself, but now he's going, no, 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 it's not just God, but even the angels are involved in this. There's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he said it again. Who do you think he's talking to? He's definitely talking to the Pharisees. He said, the reason why I'm having dinner with these guys is because I'm trying to get them to the place where heaven can be rejoicing because they have found something wonderful. I know what this is like when I've when you've when you've when you've lost money. I remember being in the place years ago when Crystal and I were first married and first in ministry and, and we had not really any money. And I remember going, God, we need some more money, please, Father, give us money. And one day it was in the laundry and we were just cleaning out. And by the side of the of, of our washing machine, there was a check there that I had I had lost for five months. It was five hundred dollars, and I'm like, cha-ching in the name of Jesus. I mean, the joy just came up and I'm running in the house going, Crystal, Jesus loves us. You feel the joy, don't you? You feel the joy when you suddenly get this check that comes in. Or maybe you just feel a relief because you're now not under the burden of debt or something like this. But now we're going to go into the third parable, which Jesus told them all in a row. And he, he went from a story about uh, something that was far away, a sheep that was far away. And then he went to something that was actually close by in the house. And now he's going into something that's actually close to a person's heart. And he's going to be talking about what we famously call the prodigal son, right? But actually, it should be called the parable of the two sons, not the prodigal son. Because he starts off that way and he says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the money. Where my money at? Where my money at? Now, what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to try and paint the worst picture he can paint, right? He's going to paint the worst picture he can paint because he is going to try and pull in every element he can to try and really irritate the Pharisees, the ones who are the most holy people, the ones who are the, the church uh, attending good people in our culture. He's looking to try and offend them right now. And the first thing he says is, give me my share. Talk about a greedy, impatient, ungrateful child. He doesn't, want, he doesn't just want your money. He wants you to be dead, but since you have not died, he's just going to go ahead and just ask for the money. What type of child asks for, hey, <laughs> hey dad, I know, I know you're going to give me half of your stuff. Why don't you just go ahead and do it now? Can I just half your stuff? Kale, take no pointers on this one, right? <laughs> Why don't you just go ahead and give me my money now? Talk about selfish. You can imagine, who does he think he is? And it continues on. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
continues on. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. Why would that irritate the Pharisees? I'll tell you why it irritated them. Because there's no greater place than the promised land. Why would you want to go somewhere else? You can't go, you, when you go somewhere else, you're basically saying that everything that God has given to us and given to us through our ancestors, you don't want, you think is a load of junk and you just want to leave and go to a promised land. And not just any promised land. He wanted to go to Las Vegas. And there he squandered his wealth. Jesus is piling this on right now. He's like, not only did he take your money, he didn't even invest it. Now, every Jew knows that investing is probably one of the most important things, right? They're very good with money. They're very well known for handling their money well. We know that. And it says that he squandered the father's wealth, the wealth that the father had spent a lifetime building up. He had, by blood, sweat, and tears, he had, and many late nights and early mornings and long days, he had sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed to build up this wealth for his child and his children. And he took, the son took it and squandered it all. He put it, he put it all on black on that spinny wheel thing at Las Vegas. You can tell I don't go there, or maybe I do, and I'm pretending not to. Okay. And then, of course, he did it in wild living. Well, who doesn't want to do wild living, right? Okay, No? No, okay. Wild living is something we all desire at some point in our life. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine. Now in Jewish culture, a severe famine is a sign of God's judgment upon you, right? So he's not just painting a bad picture of the sun. He's even painting a picture that God is against him. And everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. It's one thing to leave your home. It's one thing to leave your promised land. It's one thing to lose everything. But now you're subjugating yourself to someone who doesn't even submit to God. Someone who is a pagan who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Everybody knows that anyone who is a Muslim or a practicing Jew cannot touch pigs. Certainly can't have a bacon sandwich, right? And now he has to go and not only look after those pigs, but try and make this man wealthy through his pigs. Jesus is piling this on. He longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. And I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, Fajr, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants so he, could get, so he got up and went to his father. Now many of us probably would have, should have imagined if the story stopped there, that you should have imagined that the story would have gone like this. The father sees the son coming and go, Hey, what you doing here? So what did you do with the money? Oh, oh, you want a job? Oh, you want a job? You're kidding. You want a job here? You blew all the money that I gave you? I, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to think about this one, son. This is, no, I'm sorry. This is, you have stepped out of line and I need some time to think about this. That's how most of us would have felt his story should have gone. Maybe most of us have actually acted that way as well. And even if he came out and said, but dad, I'll take the worst job. I'll do whatever job it takes. 
All right, well, you can start off by mopping that floor over there, the, the latrine. You can clean that out first. That's how many of us respond to someone who has come back who doesn't deserve mercy. But here's what Jesus does. He continues the story. He says, but while he was still a long way off, wasn't even, he wasn't even in front of him. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Beyonce wasn't the first one to sing about this. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his fan. So they began to celebrate. You can feel the joy of the father. I thought I'd lost my son and now he's home. I absolutely love this. The problem is most Christians take this story and we like to stop right here. Why? Because that's where we want to marinate. I want to consider myself as the prodigal son and we are, we are the prodigal son. We are the ones who actually have rejected God and we have found the father and we're all sitting in this room now going, I know what it was to be the prodigal son, but we don't move to the next part of the story, which is actually Jesus's point. This stuff wasn't the final part of the story. He wasn't speaking to the sinners about this. He was already having dinner with them. He was already in relationship and conversation with them. He wanted to get to the rest of the story, which is now comparing ourselves to the older brother. And it says this, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, hey, what's going on? Notice that. He didn't go in himself. He could feel that something wasn't right. He could feel that where is this joy coming from? And what is this about? And why isn't it about me? Why am I not a part of this? So he sent one of the servants in find out what's going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. Most of us think the character that was least happy to see the prodigal son was the older son. It wasn't. It was actually the fattened calf, right? <laughs> the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Anger will always birth rejection. Anger will always birth rejection where you push people away from you. I know exactly what that's about because I was a pastor's kid growing up and I saw how I felt like how my father was used and abused by people in church. I saw how he would pour into them and give them time and effort and energy and I just slowly built up a resentment that he gives and gives and gives to these people and they give them nothing back. That's not true. There was many people who did give him something bad, but most of them didn't. And then I would start to resent my father because who does he think he is? Why does he keep giving to this person that keeps messing up and taking up his time when it's actually time away from me? 
I didn't have the heart of my father. My anger decided to birth a rejection. I would rather complain about the lost than try and win the lost. Have any of you been in that position where you have found yourself complaining about what's going on in culture right now, going on in society, going on in the streets, going on in the race wars, going on in the riot wars, going on in all the things that are going on, and you have so much commentary and you'd rather talk about and complain about what you see on the television than you're spending on your knees for the lost. That makes us into the older son. Because the next thing that happens is the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, be a part of this, he said. But he answered his father, look, all the years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. How is it these guys are getting blessed? How are they getting mercy? How are they getting all the attention? And I'm the one who's been giving and giving and giving. He was thinking like a slave. A slave is someone who is giving and giving and giving and giving, either because of their will or against their will. Regardless of what position you're in, you can be a slave and not be in any chains. This is what I call duty without delight. It's working for the kingdom of God and giving, but there is no joy being stirred up in your heart. Years ago, I was, I was in a place where I lived in a, in a neighborhood that wasn't a fancy neighborhood, very blue collar neighborhood. And nobody looked after the neighborhood at all. And I got to the place to go, someone needs to clean this up. And of course, my Christian guilt went, well, then I'll do it because that's what Christians do, right? So I'd clean it up and I'd pick stuff up and I used to mow my, my neighbor's yards and help them out. And at the front of the entrance, we mowed the front entrance and, and even Michael Heiner came and he helped me and put in some plants. And I used to, every week I'd go pick up the trash. And after a few years of doing that, I started to resent it. And the reason I started to resent it is because I didn't know who it belonged to. If you think your neighborhood or where you live belongs to the neighbors and everybody else, then you'll reject it. You won't do anything about it. Why? Because it's not mine. It's, it's everybody's. I won't do anything about it. If you think it's your neighborhood, then you're likely to put effort into it and to look after it. But eventually you'll start resenting it because other people are not looking after it. The only place you can live in when you're living in this life is you have to see everything as belonging to the Father. Because when it belongs to the Father, then joy fills your heart because it's my dad who is pleased with me. In fact, it evidenced in this, in the next part where it says, you've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And it goes on, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You give them the best of the best. How is it I am giving and I'm giving and I'm giving? This guy wanted to celebrate because he was living in a bubble. He wanted to celebrate not with the father, not with the lost, but only with his friends. He had insulated himself into his own world. I wonder how many of us have quietly and quietly and secretly started to insulate ourselves from the world. You live in a beautiful neighborhood. You got a nice truck, don't you? You got a lovely job. 
You don't actually have to bump into people. You don't have to stop to try and help a person who's needy on the side of the road. You don't actually have to go speak to your neighbours because they never come out. You are insulated from the rest of the world. This is not where Jesus spent his time. He didn't spend his time in his carpenter shop and in his truck and, and, and picking up a, a wood from Home Depot and just hoping that he wasn't bumping in or maybe someone will come, uh, come along and ask me for five bucks. So I'll give him five bucks and that will soothe my soul. But that five bucks is probably 0.001% of everything you make in your life. This is not the calling of God. And Jesus is driving this home. The point that Jesus is trying to say is he's summing up where a person gets their joy from. Because everything he's talking about in these three stories, he says, lost and found, joy. Lost and found, rejoicing. Lost and found, we must celebrate. The question is, where is our joy coming from? He doesn't condemn uh, joy because you found a sheep or because you found your keys. He doesn't condemn us because we found some money and we're happy for that. He doesn't even condemn the older brother for working so hard. He's saying that there is no party in heaven because you got a new job. There is no party in heaven because you found your keys, because you're no longer sick, because your political party won the election, because she said yes to you, because you got into college, because you got justice. There is no joy in heaven for that. There's only one thing that stirs up the courts of God and that's when a sinner gets saved. Do you feel that same joy? Are you chasing after that same joy? Is it something that when you get up in the morning it's the only thing that you're looking for? I've got some news for you this morning. The stuff you have is what the Father is willing to spend for one more lost sinner. If he's willing to lose everything he's got, even his own son, to get you, you can bet your bottom dollar he will spend your bottom dollar to get to that one sinner. Everything you own, even your children, Because this father didn't decide to side with his older son. He tried to plead with his older son. But he was willing to sacrifice everything just to have one sinner back. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Does your joy come from that same source? Years ago, I went to Bible college, not because I wanted to, but because I believe that God told me to. And I didn't like Bible college because I was still a resentful young man. I resented that God was calling me into ministry and I told him I didn't want to be a pastor and I told him I didn't want to be like my dad. I told him, I told him, I told him. But I knew that he opened up the door for me to Bible college so I was too scared to disobey him so I did it and I went there. And one day, I've been there for a year and my tutor sat me down and she said, how are you doing here? I'm like, I'm fine, I'm doing great, wonderful. And she goes, well, what do you like about the college and what do you not like about the college? And I said, I can tell you what I don't like about the college. I don't like that all you do is teach us, teach us, teach us, teach us, but we're not doing anything. This seems like a big fat waste of time. All we're doing is studying, 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 but we're not getting out in the streets and doing something. And she said, well, why don't you start something up and go out in the streets yourself? Yeah. You would think I should have said yes. <laughs> but my arrogance inside of me said, am I not paying you for this? I didn't say it, I thought it. It's not as bad as saying it, right? 
And then the other part of my arrogance, which is called pride, went, fine, I'll do it. Because I wanted to prove them wrong. So what I did is I put up posters and I'm like, we're going to go out street evangelizing. Come at lunchtime. I will teach you how to do it. And out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this college, only six turned up. And I'm looking at it going, six, six. This doesn't say much for my leadership, does it? I was thinking, everybody's going to turn up. And look, I'm showing everybody how this is done. Six people turned up, so I told them how to do it. I'm like, okay, when you walk up to people, don't just go, hey, you want to be a Christian? You go up to them, and here what you do is you go, hi, we're actually just from this, this Bible college down the road, and we're just out in the streets right now, just trying to figure out what people think about Christianity. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever thought much about the Christian way of life? Pebble in the shoe, right? Pebble in the shoe. That's what I was doing. So I'm, and I'm going up to people, and that's what we're going to try and do. So we sent them out, and I realized, wait, there's six of them, and there's only one of me. We always go at two by two. I'll go down to the cafeteria, and I'll scream out to everybody, hey, we're going out in the streets. Who would like to join me. So I did that. And I'm like, who would like to join me? Crickets. Crickets in the room. And all I could hear was, I don't wanna. Right? And I'm like, God, what is wrong with the church in Scotland? So this young guy stands up and he goes, I'll come with you. The very guy I didn't want. Who's this guy? This guy was actually a very short guy. I think he had dwarfism or something like that. And he wasn't very tall but he was an angry young fellow. And he was always argumentative. And even in class, he was always arguing, arguing, arguing. And I couldn't stand that. And I'm like, I don't want this guy because all he's going to do is argue, argue, argue. And I don't want to be with an argumentative type of guy. So we went out in the streets and I'm like, okay, so let me do the talking and we'll go tell people about Christ, right? Arrogance. So I went out and we went, started speaking to some people and none of them really responded. No one cared. He's just walking by. And then he goes, well, what about that guy sitting against the wall over there? I'm like, Let's go over there. So I go over there and I'm like, hey, we're just from the Bible college down the road and we're out, out in the streets right now just asking people what they think about God. I'm just wondering, what you, what's your thoughts on the, on, on the Christian way of life? Have you ever thought much about it? And he goes, I don't care about that, S-H-I-T. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, is, is there anything we can help you with? And he goes, if God loved me, why am I on the streets and why am I homeless? Why have I got nothing? You guys want to come out here and tell me about God? What do you have for me? You got nothing. He was angry. This young guy beside me, he decides to speak up. And I'm like, oh God, it's going to get worse. And he goes, well, can I tell you about my story? And he said, you know, I grew up with a father that used to beat the living daylights out of me. And I hated God because he didn't give me a good dad. And he said, and then one night I ran away and I ran away from home and I packed my bags I couldn't take anymore. I was 16 years old and I left home and I've never seen my father since. And he said, and I ran out and that night it just poured rain and I was sitting down. I was sitting against the wall just like you right now. And I remember crying out to God, I'm like, God, why have you abandoned me? Why? Why? Why do I have to be on the streets? Why am I here? And the guy just burst into tears. Both of them were in tears. And he's like, and in that moment, God spoke to me in my heart and said, you're still my son. And he's like, I just felt this, this peace in my heart. And I said, I'll trust you. He said, years later, I'm now at a Bible college and I'm training to become a minister of Jesus Christ. And I remember standing there going, I don't know what just happened here. <laughs> and then we walked home and we, we led him to Christ. And we walked back to the Bible college and I was super humbled and broken because I'd realized I had been the oldest son. I wanted to prove everyone else wrong. 
I wanted to be celebrated more than anyone else being celebrated. And I couldn't trust this young guy who didn't have the skills or the gifts to lead anyone else to Christ, but he had the heart and I didn't. My challenge to you this morning is, do you have the heart for the lost? If you don't, you're gonna get resentful. You're gonna lack joy. You're gonna find relationships are gonna start abandoning you because you don't have the joy that it takes to live the life of Christ. I don't wanna be a Pharisee. Father, this morning, I pray that every person this morning, as we're considering what it is to take the gospel home to our children, our neighbors, our family, and our colleagues, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would fill every person's heart up with conviction, that they would be reminded of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I pray that, Father, you would fill their heart up with conviction that this week they can do nothing but think about lost sinners. Ask this in your precious name.